If you will join me in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah 4, we continue in our series through the book of Jonah. And our sermon this morning is entitled, Gracious and Merciful. Our text is Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And our key words for our worshipers and training are mercy, anger, and life. Now, Alexander III of Macedon, who you probably know as Alexander the Great, is a very well-known figure in world history. He is said to have been a very energetic leader. Uh, He was very versatile in every way, a very intelligent man. Uh, He was considered to be a tactical genius when it came to warfare. Alexander spent most of his uh, days, uh, in, at least as a, as a, a ruling um, force, on military campaign. As soon as he uh, assumed the role of uh, commander of, uh, of an entire region, they were on military campaign. And no others have compared to him in terms of his leadership and leading his army to sweep through Asia and Northeast Africa. And it led to the formation of one of the largest empires in the ancient world. Alexander went his entire life completely undefeated in battle. Now, given that resume, it's interesting to note that all indications are that Alexander was actually not at all a violent or hot-tempered man. However, there is a story that when one of Alexander's dearest childhood friends, who was one of his generals, became very drunk one night, he began to ridicule Alexander in front of all of his other men. And in a fit of rage, Alexander took a spear from one of the nearby soldiers and hurled it at his friend. His intention was to scare the drunken general, but Alexander was so good with his spear that he did not miss, and he took the life of his dear friend and ally. And it's said that Alexander fell into a state of deep remorse and guilt, and he even attempted on many occasions to take his own life as a result but he was stopped by his men. He was sickened all of it, by all of it. And when he said what he wanted to be known by, it wasn't all of his great work as a military leader. He wanted to be known from there on as a murderer of his closest friend. Now perhaps for all of us, murder is not something we've committed. However, sinful anger has been in our hearts at one time or another. And as a result, we have acted rashly and harshly in ways that we regret. When I think of someone like Alexander the Great, it's amazing to me that uh, while the world will forever remember him for what he accomplished militarily in the building of an empire, he himself was weighed down with grief and with sorrow over his own sinful anger. It's interesting to think how his legacy would have been remembered if he was ever successful in taking his own life after killing his friend. But all of us can attest to the fact that sinful anger is an unfortunate reality of life in this fallen world. 
In our self-justifying moments, we want to lash out at others who fail to serve us in the ways that we expect them to. And as a result, we leave a trail behind us of regret and shame and damage that we never hope for in the very beginning. And in our text this morning, we're going to see the result of Jonah's sinful anger when he despises the Ninevites who have just experienced one of the most astonishing spiritual revivals in the history of the world because of his preaching. Jonah's focus is inward, and as a result, he turns against all others, including God, because he didn't get what he wanted. He responds in sinful anger. The first thing I want us to see this morning is that sinful anger blinds us to the magnificent work of God. Look at verse 1 of Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Of course, he's speaking here of the great spiritual revival that he had seen in the Ninevites, repentance. And I'm certain that any one of us in here this morning would be beyond excited to see, to be witness of the kind of spiritual awakening that took place in Nineveh. And as a pastor, I I can only think that a preacher like Jonah should be all the more excited that God would use him for such an outcome. Most preachers pour their lives into trying to faithfully proclaim the gospel week after week and year after year and decade after decade. And while there is certainly much fruit to be thankful for, it's a rare man that can be said to have had an impact on over 100,000 people in just three days. Truth be told, I'm certain we could probably count the number of people who have done that on one hand. Jonah was the instrument God used to save a vast multitude of people. And yet his response is not in any way what we would probably expect. A a literal reading of verse 1 here is that it was an evil thing for him and it was hot for him. So Jonah was looking at the work of God and he He thought his work to bring about revival in Nineveh was an evil thing, a disastrous thing. Jonah looked at the work of God and he called it evil. And then it says it made him very hot. The idea conveyed here isn't that Jonah was just sort of bummed out or that he had a bad attitude about it, but he was enraged. He was overcome with hot anger. Now, I don't know about you, but that just sort of stops me right there. A prophet of God. He's seen the greatest revival in the history of the world probably. And he calls it evil on the part of God and he is hot with anger. Isn't that shocking? After all he's just gone through to get to this point, he's been humbled by God. All this disaster has come into his life to bring him to this point. And he accuses God of evil. Do you see how our sinful anger blinds us to the magnificent work of God? We are tempted to call what is a work of God and what is good evil. Indeed, the prophet Jeremiah is correct in saying the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This isn't what we've been led to expect at this point in the narrative, is it? 
We seem to be on sort of this upward trajectory with Noah. Things, uh, with, with Jonah, sorry. Things were getting better in terms of his obedience in his, in his walk with the Lord. It seemed as though Jonah had, had made things right before God. Back in chapters 2, we, we saw this heartfelt prayer of repentance. And then in chapter 3, he follows through with what God called him to do. And let me go ahead and re- ruin the rest of the story for you. The final verse is not, and then they all lived happily ever after. The book of Jonah really is puzzling in many ways. And most surprisingly, we see a prophet of God who, after repenting and displaying obedience, finds himself right back where he was before. And this time, he's even more enraged than he was before because God had actually done what Jonah feared he would do initially. There's a fascinating chain of events leading up to Jonah's anger. When God saw the repentance and fasting of the Ninevites, we read in chapter 3 and verse 10, he relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And when Jonah saw what God had done, it displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. He called it evil, and he was hot with anger. He was blinded by his own anger. He was blinded by his hatred. He was blinded by his own self-will and refusal to acknowledge any good thing in this work of God. Now remember, Jonah was angry because these Assyrians were not being destroyed by God. He wanted them destroyed. They were enemies of Israel. So Jonah thought it perfectly just to long for their destruction. And this speaks to the nature of man, doesn't it? There still remains in all of us remnants of the flesh, and we do not get rid of that until the old Adam is completely destroyed. In Acts chapter 14, Barnabas and Paul say, we are human beings subject to the same troubles as you are. And the author of the epistle of James uh, says about Elijah, Elijah was a man of like nature with ourselves. The point is that these are great men, but they had flesh just like us. And so no matter how holy and faithful they were, still, at times, they lapsed in very disgraceful ways because of the weakness of the flesh. Just as Jonah here, although he was tested in marvelous ways, he exercised his faith from time to time, it is, he was not able to submit his will to the will of God with joy. Now, the most excellent and highest God wanted to save the people of Nineveh. And Jonah didn't feel that way. Rather, he was irate and he was grumbling. Truly, no suffering or no temptation is adequate for putting the old man to death completely. The old Adam does not stop being like himself no matter how great the temptation may be until he finally perishes completely when the entire old man will be choked to death once and for all. And this, brothers and sisters, is why we must keep very careful watch on our own hearts. We can easily justify our own sinful anger to such a degree that we actually despise the good work of God around us. Is there anything that God does that you consider inappropriate? When God blesses those who oppose you, are you jealous? 
Does the thought cross your mind that things should be different? When God brings trials and difficulties into your life, do you think that you deserve an easier path, a bit more comfort, a bit more ease? When someone else receives praise and attention, are you jealous? In all of those ways, we express the same kind of attitude as as Jonah. Isaiah responded to such arrogance when he said, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does your work say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? Paul agrees when he asks in Romans 9, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Is there any question as we consider our own hearts in light of what we're seeing with Jonah here, Is there any question that we are in desperate need of the grace of God in our lives? As long as the old Adam does not die within us completely and totally, we must cling all the more tightly to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And this is the proclamation of the kingdom of grace that even if there is sin left in God's saints, his children, and it cannot be otherwise, still it is not counted against us, but it is forgiven. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are tempted and often fall into great sin, brothers and sisters, no doubt about it. But no matter how great our sin we can rest assured that we have an even greater Savior. And yet we must recognize our own heart's tendency in our sinful anger to be blinded to the magnificent work of God around us. Well, the second thing we see in our text this morning is that sinful anger tempts us to despise the character of God. Look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not, what this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Uh, this is the second time in the book of Jonah, that we see our prophet praying to God. However, his prayer this time around is quite a bit different. It was an angry prayer. It revealed some of the poison which had invaded his relationship with God. But here's what we can say, at least, is that he did pray. It certainly was an advance on what had happened before as he had run away from God. I think we're easily tempted to look at Jonah's actions as being in such opposition to God, and perhaps we might even assume that he was not in right relationship with him at all in terms of his soul. But while he remained disobedient, and even as he despised God's work and character, he turned to God in faith, even though his anger 
is clear in his prayer. He was obstinate. He was rebellious. But he was still a child of God, and we have no reason to think otherwise. Now, Jonah admits that knowing God's true character is why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. It's kind of a shocking revelation. This is why I intended to run as far away as I could. I knew that you would be gracious toward them. I knew that you would be showing them mercy. And Jonah's very clear, identifying the character of God in his grumbling prayer, and he despises it. Now, here in this verse, Jonah identifies five things which he uses to accuse God and justify his own sinful anger. Very quickly, these five things. The first is he said, you are a gracious God. Now, the Israelites had experienced God's grace innumerable times throughout history, and Jonah knew that this was in God's character. He himself had been the recipient time and again of God's grace, even in this very narrative. And as he was cast overboard from the ship, in his sin, the Lord graciously provided a way out through the great fish that swallowed him and preserved him for three days and three nights. There's no question in Jonah's mind that God was indeed gracious. His own life was a testimony to that reality. And God continuously gives us what we are in no way deserving of. In God there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And as Christians who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we're all the more aware of that reality. The second thing Jonah identifies is that you are a merciful God. Perhaps more than anything, Jonah despised the fact that God was merciful to the Ninevites. He often had God, how how often had God preserved Israel in her sin? How often had God shown Jonah that he is willing to forgive sin even though his actions demanded justice? God's provision for all of our physical and spiritual need is his acting in mercy. The Apostle Paul tells us that God is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses and by his mercy he has made us alive together with Christ. And so he sees that God is is gracious and God is merciful. The third thing he identifies is that God is slow to anger. Another way to say this is that God is patient. Think, brothers and sisters, how often we have done that which should have justly aroused the anger of God and yet he was slow to bring chastisement and discipline our way. This is the first characteristic the Apostle Paul points to when he's describing what true love is in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Our love for others is a reflection of God's love toward us. And God's love is patient. And if it wasn't, we would all be condemned forever already. In fact, it can be said of God that he above all would be the one who is justified to execute the swiftest judgment because he himself is our creator and what he commands, he requires. And yet, God is patient with us, slow to anger, 
opting to show us grace and mercy instead of justice. Fourthly, he identifies that God is abounding in steadfast love. God's love is not only inexhaustible, it is also infinitely reliable and infinitely indestructible. When the Lord of heaven and earth sets his love upon mankind whom he has created in his own image, we can rest assured that his love is immovable. It is everlasting. It is complete. So often when we are in our sin or when we are being disciplined by the Lord Jesus Christ, our suffering, our experience of trials in life, we are prone to feel as though the Lord has removed his love from us. But Jonah knew better. And so Jonah reminds us that the true nature of God's love is that it is steadfast and it never ends. Fifth, he says of God that he relented from disaster. When God judges a rebellious, wicked, unbelieving person or group of people, he, del- he, he delights in the vindication of truth and goodness and his own honor and his own glory. However, this is very important. The message of Ezekiel 18 is that God in no way finds pleasure in the death and the misery of the unrepentant. God is not a sadist. God is not malicious or bloodthirsty. And so when God shows himself to a people to be gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he will for a time relent from disaster. But we know this is not true forever. There will be a day of judgment. And indeed, many nations have seen the wrath and judgment of God for their continued rebellion against him. And if we are to speak of God in human terms, though, it is not to his liking that one should perish in their sins. He does not find joy in the destruction of those who have rebelled against him. So when we put all of this together, we see that Jonah undoubtedly understood God's character from his own personal experiences and from how he saw God responding to Israel repeatedly and simply from his own knowing of God. But in this instance, he in no way shares the heart of God. In his sinful anger, Jonah was blinded to the magnificent work of God all around him, which led him to despise the very character of God that had served to preserve Jonah and his fellow countrymen in Israel time after time after time. But I want to show us that Jonah's sinfulness was even further than this we can see just how truly opposed to God's actions Jonah was. Because what Jonah is doing in his prayer is seeking to use God's word against him. He tried to quote God's word back to him in a warped desire to show that he, Jonah, was right and that God was wrong. 
Now, Jonah's reference here is familiar to us. We read it at the beginning uh, during our call to worship. It's taken from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what could Jonah have been thinking in using God's word in this way? I think it's this. Yes, God's word says he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but it also says that he will by no means clear the guilty. Nineveh is guilty. What do you have to say about that, God? They're guilty. Why are you not destroying them? That's what they deserve. Brothers and sisters, it is a dreadful and frightful thing that we would ever seek to use God's word against him and to prove ourselves right. This is the very attitude of Satan as he sought to tempt Christ in the wilderness. He sought to use the word of God against him. This is what Jonah is doing. You see, because what Jonah didn't like is the middle phrase of those two verses in Exodus. He didn't like that it says that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin when it applied to Nineveh. He was certainly okay that it applied to Israel, but when it came to a pagan nation, he was angry. I wonder if there are times in our lives that we can think of when God did not act immediately in the way that we hoped him to, particularly when it comes to seeing what we perceive justice to be in a certain situation. Are we despising the character of God? Do we kick against the idea that God is patient? Do we think God is slow to anger and to bring out his discipline or his wrath and we are upset by that? Brothers and sisters, when we despise the Lord's timing in doing as he sees fit, we are despising his character. We are saying that we want God to be different than he is as if we should have a say in who our creator is and what he does. Our creator who has shown us overwhelming grace and mercy and patience and steadfast love and who has relented from disaster in our lives. When we're prone to cry out and say, how long, O Lord? We must remember the character of God that we might ourselves ask that he conform our hearts to be more like his. We're certainly invited by the Bible to inquire after the logic of God's actions. But we may do this only as an expression of humble faith, never out of an arrogance that dares to challenge and demand an answer from God. Christians are people who ask questions. We wonder about the nature of things and events, and that's okay, but we never think that we have the right to expect God to act according to our logic or to prove to us the wisdom behind his justice and his deeds. God owns all, and he will give an account to no one. 
Now, for some of you here this morning, what I don't want to do is to leave you without the truth of what Jonah is thinking about in Exodus 34. God does indeed offer forgiveness of sin, but the rest of the verse is true. He will by no means clear the guilty. Every single sin that is ever committed in this world must be judged because God is just. A just judge cannot allow any single sin to go unpunished. And the penalty for every sin ever committed is death. Without death, there is no payment for sin. Now, when the Bible talks about this death, it's talking about an eternal death, an eternal separation from the blessing of God that you experience even now if you live in rebellion against him. Friends, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, loving him and doing what he commands, you will pay the penalty for your sins on your own. Everlastingly, you will suffer the torment that is promised to those who reject God in Jesus Christ. However, the sins of God's people have been paid in full by the God-man, Jesus Christ, who taking on flesh lived a perfect, law-fulfilling life that we were unable to live. He died a sinner's death that we deserve. He rose from the dead to secure our resurrection from the dead. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself every ounce of God's wrath that was reserved for my sin. And if you trust in Christ, for your sin. And as a result, I am given the righteousness of Christ to walk in and to be justified by. And when I am in Christ, I can stand before God in Christ's righteousness and be declared not guilty, even though I know for my own life, that I'm guilty time and time and time and time again. When I stand in Christ, the Father says, not guilty because he has been made guilty on my behalf. So even though I will sin in my life and sometimes look a whole lot more like Jonah than I do like Christ, I can rest assured that because my Redeemer lives, so shall I. Will you repent of your sin and trust in Christ? He's ready, he is willing for you to repent and believe. You are a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. Well, it's likely at this point that we've picked up on the reality of our third point, and that is this. Sinful anger is self-serving. Look at verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Sinful anger is self-serving. I am sinfully angry when I am angry because I do not get what I want. Most often it's in the form of someone or something not serving me in the way that I desire and demand of them not bending to my will. In Jonah's case, he was sinfully angry because God would not do what Jonah hoped he would do. So for Jonah, the only logical conclusion was that he was better off dead. It seems so uh, drastic, doesn't it? But sinful anger is irrational. 
It cannot be reasoned with. It is, it is filled with so many forms of illogical thought and bitterness and hostility. Have you ever tried to reason with someone as they are in a rage? It's hard to reason with them. Now, perhaps Jonah's desire sounds familiar. Remember back in chapter 1, what was Jonah's greatest desire when, when he realized he wouldn't be able to escape the command of God? He was on the ship. He was being tossed all over. He couldn't get off. It wasn't going to go back to land. What did Jonah want? He told the sailors to throw him overboard in the midst of a tempestuous storm. What is the only result that can come from that in our minds? It is certain death. And in Jonah's mind, death was far greater than obedience because he hated Nineveh. He hated the Assyrians. But now, here we are again. God has shown him mercy. God has been gracious to him. There's repentance. There's obedience. But he's still not pleased with the outcome. And he returns to his previous desire. Just take my life, Lord. This is a warning to us. It's a warning that it's possible to obey God, but to do so with such a degree of unwillingness and anger that so far as we are concerned, the obedience is no better than disobedience. If you're a parent, you've seen it in your children. They may do what you ask, but they do it with such an attitude and such a look on their face and a stomping of their feet that you realize it is not willingly, it is not joyfully, it is not out of a desire to honor their parents. It's out of a desire to escape something else entirely. And so we all have within us the capacity to obey God indeed, perhaps, but in our heart we are so unwilling we're so unlike Christ in our obedience that it is no better than disobedience. Sometimes in our day-to-day lives, we encounter opposition or trials, and we think, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But our motive is often simply wanting to escape from those we don't like or the troubles that distress us. When the Apostle John wrote those words in Revelation, Jesus come quickly, the point was to ask that Jesus would bring fulfillment to all that God had designed, that it would all be brought to completion, not that things would just get cut off in mid-plan. But so often we just wish that Jesus would come back and we can't understand why he would delay his return any longer. But like Jonah, perhaps we don't understand God as good as we think we do. The Apostle Peter knew this was going to be the way we thought about these things. So he wrote in 2 Peter 3, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
So here's Peter's point. God is merciful and his judgment is delayed and Jesus has not yet returned because God's desire is to call to faith all who will be born again. Aren't you glad that the Lord Jesus didn't return before you were able to hear the gospel and repent and believe? Brothers and sisters, we grumble and complain and there are many difficulties and trials in our lives day after day and we we wish away tomorrow because it's tough and because we struggle. But let us rejoice that God has made another day of new mercies to call sinners unto himself that they might repent and believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ like you and I. So Jonah shows us that sinful anger is self-serving It may even drive us to have irrational desires, showing no concern for others. And as a result, the final thing we see in the text this morning is that sinful anger is displeasing God. Verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Charles Spurgeon once said, anger is temporary insanity. I have no more right as a Christian to allow a bad temper to dwell in me than I have to allow the devil himself to dwell there. When I feel within myself the boiling up of sinful anger, I need to be reminded of God's word to Jonah lest I find myself, as Spurgeon has said, temporarily insane. I need to be reminded of God's word. Do you do well to be angry? This is always a good question. Am I justly angry? And even in this moment, notice how tender God is being with Jonah. Surely he could have blasted him. He could have laid into Jonah, but he gently rebukes his prophet with a rhetorical question. And God was determined to overthrow Jonah's self-serving will and bring about changes in his wrongly oriented mind. As Christians, we have a responsibility to examine our own hearts, to determine whether or not we are walking in obedience to God. And one of the most difficult things we have to do is to admit when we are wrong and to turn back to God in repentance that we can walk forward in obedience. And when it comes to sinful anger, We must go to God in prayer and tell him how easily our irritable heart is aroused to sinful anger. We need to ask God for the sufficient grace to not harbor thoughts of sinful anger. We must engage Christ who is our master and our advocate and who himself was tempted to sinful anger but never succumbed to it so that he could simultaneously sympathize with us and walk obediently in the ways that we do not. And so in him, in Christ, we can find rest and motivation for obedience and to calm our sinful anger. And when we do fall into times of sinful anger, we have the great promise that in our repentance, God does not hold against his children those things which we do in opposition to him. It's no license to sin, 
but it is a free invitation to come to him in prayer, in repentance, knowing that he will not deal with us harshly, but that he will restore us, that he will strengthen us, that he will sanctify us, that he will conform us all the more to the image of his dear son, Jesus Christ, that he will set on us the right way, that we might walk in greater communion with him for his glory and for our good.